Psalm 81, verses 1 through 16, to the choir master, according to the Giddith of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he who would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. I feel like we've been uh, very well led and uh, very well fed already. My name is Evan, and uh, I'm looking forward to spending our second to last message uh, in Psalms. So we've been in a series in Psalm over the summer, and uh, it's been called Soul Food, because if we spend time in the Psalms, uh, we will be changed. So Psalm 81. The first thing that you're going to notice when we open up Psalm 81 is that God is instructing the Israelites in this celebration. And it, it starts with congregation moves with, with instrument, and then you've got the blaring of shofars and trumpets, and, uh, and so it's on. The second thing you're going to notice is that it's, it's mandated. So, so this joy is actually something that God says you must do. You'll notice that it is a statute and a rule, which just means it's carved in stone. It's a standing festival for all generations. Now, the feast that we're talking about is most likely the Feast of the Tabernacle, which starts in the seventh month, and on the first day, there's the blowing of trumpets, and it's normally during the, the full moon, and this, this feast ends on the 15th with blowing of trumpets, and there's a, a full moon at that point. So a new moon, a full moon, and in the middle is a bunch of sacrifices and the Day of Atonement. Toward the end, they start building their booths. And so this is a commemoration of the time they spent in, in the wilderness. Well, one might wonder whether or not rejoicing uh, can be mandated. You know, it, but rejoicing and being required is, is not a conflict of terms. It is obviously not dull. It is, it is anything but. It is vigorous. And it's a reminder that even though they're going to hear some really stern words from God, that even stern words coming from God is something that is a privilege to hear. It is something that is worth a song. It is worth celebration. I ask myself the question, why might God require a celebration for generation after generation? I believe that the setting of Psalm 81 gives us a clue. You kind of have to know the way that Psalms breaks down, but there are five books 
And this is in book three, so it's a cluster of psalms from Psalm 72 to 89. Book two was a time where it spoke about the, the royal psalm, and it was very, very optimistic. And so it spoke about the Messiah that was going to come, and it closes on a very, very high note. Book three is a different animal. Uh, it starts off, we heard 73, with, with, with just the angst of the psalmist about all these questions about the wicked thriving and, and so forth. Toward the end of book three is Psalm 88, which is the bleakest psalm. It never pivots to hope. So book three ends with this royal legacy that was set up in book two, threatened. This is a prophetic psalm, not in the sense of telling the future, but in the other job of a prophet is to declare to God's people and to call them to something, to faithfulness. Every generation needs a prophetic word especially those that are further off from the golden age or they're further away from the salvation event. It occurred to me that we have a lot in common with book three readers. We too are far from the salvation event. We too are in a kingdom that is divided. We live in two kingdoms. And it doesn't necessarily look like the kingdom of God is winning in our generation. We live in more pessimistic times. We may question things that previous generations took for granted. For instance, would your grandparents or great-grandparents be likely to agree with this statement? You must go to church. Now, this is something before the advent of streaming and the accessibility of a thousand other services all over the place where, where this would be taken for granted. And, and so the question here is, is before us is, is this a little bit different? So, pardon me, let me back up here. So God mandates this feast. He says generation after generation, you have to do this. Does God do anything similar for us? Well, for Christians, these feasts like this are optional. Okay, Paul said, you can blow the trumpet on the new moon or you cannot blow the trumpet on the new moon. Just, just do as your conscience dictates. And, uh, and so I'm not going to be lobbying for a new holiday on the 7th of the month. And, and I'll check with, with Larry. I don't think the shofar music's been ordered, right? Okay, no. But Hebrews 10.25 does mandate something. And it mandates that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, this pushes really hard against our individualism. God is always available for us to meet, and we can celebrate his salvation any time, but there's an appointed time for us to do so together, and we're not to forsake it. And though there are no shofars being blown, there is music, as Ephesians 5.19 tells us, that we ought to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Which these two verses, kind of in conjunction, lead me to say something that might be controversial. We need to go to church. All right? Why must we go to church? Now, does that dogmatic, you know, being that dogmatic, does that make you uncomfortable? It does me. You must go to church has a whiff of, of legalism about it. Would you be more comfortable with this phrase? Believers need to gather together regularly. Now, for some reason, I'm, I'm more 
comfortable with that phrase, right? We need to gather together regularly. You know, we, we kind of react when somebody says that we must do something. But today I'm going to let it stand because I can't duck Hebrews 10.25. And, and I see remarkable parallels between this festival that Israel was mandated to keep and between what is mandated for us in our gathering. So we do need to go to church. Now, footnote here, okay, we're assuming healthy bodies, church available, um, schedule, you know, allows you some ability to do so. So we're talking about the majority of us who have the option whether or not to go and gather with God's people. So why? Why must we go to church? Well, because going to church, or gathering if you wish, is required. And God mandates that we rejoice, because rejoicing is right. We see in verse 5b that rejoicing is the appropriate response to the salvation event. The salvation event that this festival was proclaiming was really the the exodus. And, And it points out in verse 5b here that God went out over the land of Egypt. Now, that sounds a little bit ominous. So God is like going over the land. And indeed, in Exodus 11, we find out that God is going out in order to enact the final plague that would would take the firstborn of all of the animals and all the people. And, uh, And really, it was a straw that broke the camel's back for Pharaoh. So thus began the Exodus, which is the salvation event of the Old Testament. This is where God delivers and he redeems and he breaks the yoke of oppression on his people and he rescues them. And really, it is the nation's birthday. And pretty soon, they're going to be baptized as they go through the Red Sea. That is, that is portrayed as their baptism. So we have their birth as a nation and we have their baptism through the Red Sea. The Exodus is a figure for another event the salvation event of the New Testament in which God demonstrates his power over a tyrant and shows compassion and faithfulness to a people who are in spiritual bondage through the work of Jesus Christ. And so the cross of Christ becomes the central salvation event in which we are delivered and redeemed and then we are formed as a people. This event is commemorated on the Lord's Day. We need to gather as much as they needed that festival. We, we book three people with our tricky questions and, and the darkness of our kingdom and the kingdom divided and us being far from the event, us being dependent upon the same hero that rescued us, gathering because we're told to and rejoicing because we should do so. And so I say that we need to go to church because number one, it is required, and number two, Rejoicing is right, because what other response is there to a salvation event than to come and sing about it and rejoice about it together? Now, another activity that's best done together is this, rehearsing our salvation. A second reason we go to church is because rehearsing is part of our formation as a people of God. This festival was dedicated to remembering how they became a people in the first place. In fact, every seven years, they read the entire book of the law. And in the middle of the festival, there were sacrifices that showed how they were forgiven. And in the end, they camped out. They reenacted this journey to remind themselves of God's provision. 
Their formation as a people of God is summarized in these verses, and we see the words delivered and answered and tested. So this is how a people is formed into the people of God, delivered, answered, and tested. God delivered them. Their plight is painted in very, very vivid pictures. In verse 6, it says, I relieved your shoulder from the burden, and your hands were freed from carrying the basket. It shows their slavery in these pictures. If you're familiar with the story, you'll remember how Israel came to Egypt and was cared for. And eventually, though, a pharaoh, which did not know the previous, no Joseph, a new administration rose up and was threatened by them and began to use them as expendable labor, slavery. And yet they swelled in number and in size, which led the pharaoh to like take away more of their resources until finally, fearing an uprising, the pharaoh ordered the killing of all the male infants. And this triggered what we see in verse 7, a cry of distress. And God's answer to that cry of distress is delivering them. Now, before we move on from delivered to answer, I want to look at a very interesting phrase here at the end of uh, verse, verse 5. I hear a language I had not known. This is the first of three first-person statements that God says in in this passage. So God starts speaking in the first person. And this is a puzzling one because God knows everything, obviously. He knows every language. So so what is he speaking of here? Honestly, this is puzzling in the literature as well. You'll find all kinds of things. But the, the most I can figure out here is that the groaning of his people Israel struck God kind of like a foreign language will strike you. Um, when you hear a foreign language, what does it sound like to you? Sometimes it, it, it sounds like gabbling. You know, I, I know that's not correct to say, but it does. And sometimes when you hear it enough, it, it begins to like grate on you. Just like, what are they saying? You get frustrated. But I think God is saying here, the groaning of my people strikes me as something jarring, something that makes me take note. And what does God do at that point? He moves in and begins to know, and begins to deliver. And so, God moves in and delivers them. The second part of their formation is that he answered them in the secret place of thunder. This refers to Exodus 19 and 20 at Sinai, where after the people come up, he camps them out and begins to reveal himself to them. And, uh, and, Exodus 20 says this, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and deafening trumpet blasts so that all the people in the camp trembled. What I want us to notice here is that deliverance is never the stopping place for God. God is always going to move us toward formation. He is going to start to teach us. And how does he do that? He exposes us to his presence, and that's what they were experiencing there. They, they were experiencing God's presence in the form of the thunders and lightning so that they trembled, and then he gave them his word. So we can expect the same. When you come to God in salvation, he's not just going to say, hey, you know, I, I've saved you, there's your ticket to heaven. No, he's immediately going to move in, and he's going to begin instructing you. 
And that's just how he does this. He moves in and he begins to show us his person and his word. We have an example of the formation, the type of teaching that he was doing in verses 8 through 10. I enjoy the, uh, the way that one commentator said that here we have snatches of God's words and deeds. It's almost as if the the psalmist took uh, little parts of their story in God's teaching. And so you see, hear, O my people, echoes the great commandment in Deuteronomy 6. If only echoes many places where God would just say, if only you do this, then I would bless you. No strange gods, quotes Moses' song. I am the Lord your God, reflects the Ten Commandments, which that is the reason that God says, I can give you these things, because I am the Lord your God. And so we've got God moving from deliverance to answering and beginning to form them. But then what about this last bit? Testing. Freedom from bondage, instruction in life sounds excellent, but what about testing? Testing also is part of being formed as a people of God. There are two testings mentioned here. The testings at the water of Meribah. Now there were two of these testings, one at the beginning of Israel's trip and one at the end. And unfortunately, they failed both of them. But the situation was that they were, they were in a place where they, they needed water. And the question before them each time was whether or not God was going to provide as he had in the past. And it's not just lack of water. There were irritants, you know, the, the scorpions in the bed, the sand in the bedding. There was monotony. We've got to break down this camp again. Oh, man, we've got to do it again. Now we're pulling out. There was like a menu that didn't change, manna, which you heard them grumble about that as well. And then there was just the fact that they felt like they were wandering. And it was just going on with interminably. Hey, that sounds a little bit like uh, the school year, doesn't it? Right? It just kind of, when, when you get into that grind, it's like, oh, here we go again. I'm going to eat the same thing, and, and, and off I go. I'm going to take the same classes. You know, this was a test. Now, the question is, would they recognize this testing as an opportunity where God was saying, I am setting you up for yet another chance for me to love you, to care for you, to show my power Would they say yes to that, or would they grumble? It's fascinating that our passage here says that God tested them. But in Exodus 17, it says they tested him. So they insisted that he prove himself again. So I know you've done this in the past, God. You gave us manna, you gave us quail, but you've got to prove it again before we will trust you. For most of us, I I probably don't have to point out that that grumbling is the default response to adversity. And so, is that news to you? You know, maybe, maybe when you came to Christ, you realized you'd gotten more than you bargained for. God wasn't just going to leave you alone. Now he's going to instruct you all through your life, and he's going to lead you into adversity. Hmm. Well, one of the reasons that we need to come together is because formation is a corporate activity. We rub shoulders with with other redeemed people. We hear the same word opened up. And as we begin to talk with each other afterwards, and we hear about what people are going through, you begin to realize that 
you see them, how they're coping with adversity. And what does it do for you? It makes you feel not so alone. It makes you begin to see that adversity is God's plan. On the contrary, we understand that, that it's God who tests us. And that every adversity is, is a chance to get his love and care and power. And when we forget, there's somebody to remind us. You know, um, one of the things that sociologists have noticed is that every generation has different characteristics. One of the characteristics of uh, the generation known as the greatest generation was their resilience. So they, they, the Great Depression, World War II, the Industrial Age, the flexibility, the collaboration, I mean, they built many of the structures that we still enjoy today. They were extremely resilient. Something that sociologists have also noticed is that over the years with each generation, resilience has gone down. And, and this is not to put down any other generation. It's just noticing. And so like the, the uptick of anxiety and depression and, and um, lack of connectedness and loneliness, all of these things is something that it's, it's a challenge that, that we face. And so it's true that if this is a challenge that we as a community begin to, as we're formed in God's word, as we interact with one another, as we build each other up, as we, as we encourage one another with our stories of resilience through adversity, our resilience is built. Those who come to God in the wilderness expect and have his blessing. And here is the second of God's first person words. In verse 10, he says, if you come to me, if you allow me to do what I'm planning on doing, delivering you, answering you, testing you, what will I do? Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That was always the offer that he gave to his people as he was forming them. So believers must gather, or as I have provoked us, go to church because not only is it required and rejoicing is right, but because rehearsing our story together forms us. And then a final reason, because repentance is the key to blessing. You know, despite the generosity that is expressed in verse 10, look at verse 11. God says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. For God, this is personal. In verse 13, just hear the affection in his voice. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. You can almost hear some of a parent's frustration. You know, every parent has or will experience that time when the child who thus far you have been their world, all right, wisdom just drops from your lips, you know, like they take it, they don't question it, they understand that you have their best interests in mind and they they take it from you. The first time where you realize that through the, the clinch of the jaw, the flashing of the eyes, the clinched fist, the body language, that they just aren't listening to you. 
and that more words is not going to help. You know, God kind of feels like that. He's just like, he's using emotional language like a human would that we would understand, and he's just saying, they will not listen to me. The little bit of a frustration of a parent. He responds to this not listening by giving them over in verse 12. This is something, it's, a, it's really a fearful phrase. It, it crops up prominently in another uh, book in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, verse 24, where God says that the punishment is that he allows the lust to just, just go. So it's almost as if God says, if this is the way that you're going to go, then so be it. You know, and really that is a, uh, a very, very scary, scary place to be. This is a sobering phrase, and it shows an essential aspect of judgment. Sometimes the punishment that God gives is simply to let the choices play themselves out. Another way of saying uh, the verse back in the Psalms would be that he sent them away. And it's almost literally what happened, where when they would not listen to his voice at the promised land, where he sent them back into the wilderness. And, And I tell you, when you're at that point where you're not listening to God, if you've ever been to that that place, which most of us have, where you know you're not imbibing his word, you're not listening, you are going your own way, you're making your own choices, and then those choices start to unfold, it feels like you're in in a wilderness. So, yet God continues, even though they're in a wilderness, to display affection for longing for them. And look in verse 13 and 14. Again, he, he just to say, if only you would listen. You know, Jesus had this kind of longing as well. You see this in Matthew 23 and 37, just one of the most uh, poignant parts of Jesus' ministry, where he is standing and looking over the city that was going to reject him. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you as your children gather, as a hen gathers her brood. And then he says, but you weren't willing. So Jesus had, had God's yearning to gather Jerusalem. We go to church because we recognize that we have this same tendency for stubbornness. We know that our hearts go their own way. Our hearts are kind of like that shopping cart with a broken wheel that constantly veers. So you have to constantly overcorrect it. It's frustrating. The annual festival was just one of those inputs where they would come together and once again be formed by God's word and be called to listen and to repent from the stubbornness of heart. I would say this is what your parents did. Don't do that. And we have the same, same dynamic here. We come here and we're confronted with the word week after week because we need to repent. And God says, if you would just listen, blessing would just be poured out. But this is blessing that can be forfeited. In verse 14, they would have victory in battle because he had fought for them. In verse 15, it points out that the time of Gentile, um, Gentile domination would be over. You know, we raise our eyebrows a little bit at the, any blessing that includes people cringing okay, toward the Lord, whatever might that be. We actually just heard about it last week in Psalm 2, where the 
nations around Israel, when they had a, a, one of the messianic line on the throne, if, if he was serving God, then, then he, would, he would put them down and, and they would come to him. And, and Christians throughout history have believed that when Jesus returns bodily to bring his kingdom on earth, all the other nations will submit to that. And, and so the people were invited to experience kind of a foretaste of that. And there were times in Israel's history where uh, it actually happened. Like, for instance, Solomon. David had to fight all of his life, but Solomon had peace all around him. And indeed, there were other nations that would come from far just to hear the wisdom of Solomon and to hear the wisdom of God. That's just a little taste of what Isaiah said, nations shall run to you. So although some godly kings experienced that kind of peace, they did not experience it constantly because it was so up and down and because of stubbornness. Eventually, of course, um, by the end of the revelation, uh, when it was closed, that, that blessing was closed for them until God would open it back up. Further, the land would work for them. In his valedictorian speech, Moses promised the land would produce abundant refined wheat. And finally, their obedience would produce rich and miraculous sustenance. You know, they knew the stories about God providing water from a rock. But here we have honey from a stone. Now, that's something you don't see every day. But what it's talking about is what richer than water is honey. And, and unexpected and miraculous. And God is saying, that's the kind of blessing that I reserve for those who, uh, who submit to my voice. And all these blessings are potential. They're what might have been. Notice that God says, I would satisfy you. So at the close of the revelation, those blessings had been forfeited, but God chose to do a new thing. The good news was proclaimed to all the nations, and all eyes did turn to Jerusalem and to the king that was crucified there. And to these people, spiritual blessings are available. God will have his hand on your work. God will give you rich and miraculous provision. God will deliver you. No doubt the worshipers at the festival were troubled seeing the king's line being weakened and, and seeing that the kingdom was not following after God's footsteps. And they wondered, how could God bring such a blessing? But to them and to us, really the question is not to wonder why. The, the working out of this is God's deliverance. God's answer to them is always the same. My people, whatever situation you're in, whether you're in book two or book three or beyond, listen to me. Listen to my voice and submit to me. And God still seeks listeners today. And this is why we have to go to church, because where else can we rejoice and rehearse our salvation and repent together? There's no other place like that. I love the phrase of uh, one of my favorite commentators, the hallmark of the Lord's people is hearing God's word. And, and I think that's what we have to be called back to. It's been called the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the de-churching of America. 
I heard uh, John Stone Street, who's one of my favorite voices culturally, say that this may be the century's most significant cultural and societal development. Over the past few decades, Pew Research has had noticed, like back in 2010 or 12, that 16 or 17 percent of of the United States adults would say that they were non-affiliated. Okay, in other words, agnostic, atheistic, or just you know, kind of spiritual but not religious, 16 or 17 percent. In 2021, it had moved up to 29 percent. Now, that's a, that is a sharp, that's a sharp peak. Three in 10 adults. You know, many factors contribute, including uh, loss of trust in institutions. Many younger generations would say that institutions do not reflect their, their values, uh, there is a constant war of the secular worldview that says that, that, that religion is incompatible with science and that, that works itself out in curriculum and press and many other ways. And then, yes, of course, many uh, institutions have contributed to their own bad press. I think you probably named five other ways you know, for a statistic like this. During COVID, there was a debate that arose. Um, our church is essential businesses. And though legally the answer to that was yes, practically many people showed that they saw the church as optional. And they subsequently demonstrated it by not really ever landing again. And how has the evangelical church responded to this over the last decade? We've responded by saying, come and see. We've responded by saying, Hey, we can outdo. We've responded by being attractional. We've responded by saying, we won't ask much of you. Another trend is that mainline denominations have been, have been hemorrhaging members for, forever. And possibly one of the reasons for that is that the message of the, of the secular worldview has actually made inroads. And so when you come there, you get a very, very self-improvement, non-confronting, um, sort of message where you walk out and say, wow, I don't know if they have anything to contribute to this cultural conversation. Maybe what everyone needs to hear is this. We'll ask everything of you. We are people who have been delivered from bondage into servitude. We are people who are instructed in the word and it has our full attention We are a people who proclaim good news, and it is good news whether you believe it or not. We are a people with a story. There is no other major religion that tells the history from the beginning to the end like this one. We are a people who say, I have found my place in his story. I know where I'm at, and you can join this. We are a people who are required to gather together. We're people who are required to submit. We do this because we know that failure to repent is a dangerous forfeit of blessing. And so, yes, we're people who must go to church. I laughed to myself a little bit because I was like, Evan, you are almost literally preaching to the choir here. I mean, these folks did come here today. And and I'm so glad you did. But I would say maybe. Maybe. Ogletown is fascinating because if, if everybody who was members, who were members, showed up and, um, 
and then with everyone who attends and new people, I, I mean, we would, have, we would have 800 people here, okay? So, so the, the makeup of us each week revolves. So you say, you're preaching to the choir. Well, maybe, maybe. The makeup's never the same. So I reckon that there is a chance that some of us need to commit as regards to gathering with God's people. And then some of us may just be going through the motions. Where are you going to be on Sunday? Going to be there in church. And so we need to be reminded of what we're doing here anyway. And so we're going to do something just a little bit different here. As the uh, worship team comes up, uh, we're going to bow our heads and just take a moment to, number one, thank God for calling us and forming us as a people. Number two, repent of any stubbornness of spirit that may have been revealed. Number three, ask him to bless our assembly, to bless his church. And, and if, you need, if you need to make that, re-up that commitment in your heart where you're just like, wow, I didn't know the demands that God puts on us in this way then maybe this is something you just need to bring to him. And so as they pray, just bow your head and talk to God. Then when I give the amen, the worship team will take it away.